there, and welcome to episode 47 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your most fitting host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We are firmly in the back half of season four, and finally we've made it to our two-parter, episodes 16 and 17, The 92nd War, parts one and two. Now, For the last three weeks, I've done three programs at the library that I work at, and these programs involve me talking for a little over an hour each time, and I just finished my last program last night before recording this, so my voice is a little ragged today, so sorry about that. Why not put off recording? Because I didn't get here by making good decisions. So let's go to Hawaii. Episodes 16 and 17, The 92nd War, Parts 1 and 2. Part 1 aired on January 11th, 1972. Part 2 aired on January 18th, 1972. Both parts were directed by Bob Sweeney. This is his second and third of five episodes. The story was by our beloved creator, Leonard Freeman. And the teleplay was by John D.F. Black. And these are episodes 8 and 9 out of 10 for him. Steve is working late. It's almost midnight when he finally closes up shop and leaves. Three hours later, sirens screech onto the scene of a car accident. Duke and another officer check the occupants of the flipped car and find Benny Jalore dead. On the other side of the car, they find Steve, alive. Danny rolls up as fire rescue is getting ready to extricate him. Steve is semi-conscious. A couple of reporters try to scoop it. 
McGarrett in the car with Benny Delore and hundreds in small bills? That's news. Steve regains enough consciousness to, to ask Danny what was going on. The last thing he remembers, he was in the office at midnight. Danny tells him to hang tight. They have to roll the car to cut him out. Steve says he can't feel anything. Danny tells Duke to get in touch with Doc at the hospital and have him get any kind of specialist to stand by since Steve says he can't feel anything and he can't move. They roll the car, which I'm sure is great for Steve's injuries, and cut him out. As they start to pull Steve out of the open roof of the car, Danny stops them. Steve's got a death grip on a briefcase full of cash. Danny pries it out of his hand and the fire department gets Steve out of the car and into an ambulance. Chin rolls up just as Danny is about to get in the ambulance and leave with Steve. He passes him the briefcase and tells him to close off the scene. The ambulance races to the hospital. Doc assists the ER staff with Steve's assessment. He responds to stimuli above his chest, but he can't make a fist. Steve, semi-conscious, asks for a diagnosis. The ER doc says it looks like a spinal cord injury, but it'll take two hours of testing to determine anything. Steve tells Danny to find out what happened. The last thing he remembers is still leaving the office around midnight to go home. Chin Ho and Che Fong process the accident scene while Steve goes through his battery of tests. Che determines the money scattered in the car is real. Chin and Che meet up with Dano at the scene. There's $1,000 easy in the car, all legit. The car didn't even try to stop. It just came down the hill, hit a signal, and flipped. They open the briefcase and find cash as well as a black book containing some kind of code apparently in Steve's handwriting. Chin heads to the office, leaving Che Fong to oversee the car, making it back to headquarters. Danny fills Steve in on the investigation. Steve is still struggling to remember what happened, and Danny tries to take Steve through leaving the office. Steve can remember making it to the car and trying to start it, but it wouldn't turn over. He remembers hearing a hissing sound. Danny puts an APB out on Steve's car. He wants it found, but not touched. There was $20,000 found in that car with him and Benny. He's sure he's being set up. The x-rays show no apparent damage to Steve's spinal cord, so he undergoes a spinal tap. The dye injection shows good circulation. There's no break in the spinal cord. As soon as Steve is told this, he finds he can move his hands. Danny then informs Steve that they found Steve's car parked and locked in Benny Jalore's driveway. Steve insists on getting up so he can check his coat pocket for the car keys, because where else would they be? This frame is just that good. Che finds that the code is an old military code that hasn't been used for years. Steve joins Che and an old lieutenant commander friend to go over the code that had been retired. Che goes over the evidence. The briefcase had the cash, the notebook, and only Steve and Benny's fingerprints. The code is in Steve's handwriting. Steve looks at the notebook and says that the handwriting looks like his, but isn't. When Che pulls out the projector and shows him the handwriting comparison, it proves they're identical. Che checked out Steve's car, too, and it showed no evidence of it being tampered with. According to the lieutenant commander, the coded notebook is a record of deposits in a Swiss bank account going back three years to the tune of $2 million. Steve asks Che to see about making ink comparisons with the dates and send the evidence to Danny, because suspects don't get evidence. Steve is working late again when Chin comes in with Professor Park's early results of the ink. Every entry dates to the ink. Interpol verifies that Steve signed the bank account card and they have his picture. Steve was actually there at the time. Interpol says he was because he was there for a conference. 
this is an amazing setup and it wasn't done by some local hoods. The person behind this has a lot of resources and knowledge. They're big time. Of course they are. It's Wofat. Steve relays all of this information to the governor. That Wofat picked this time for the accident means something big is about to happen. The governor calls for Jonathan Kay. While they wait, Steve points out that he was only given a minimal dose of nerve gas and was belted in, which means he was supposed to survive. This is all a distraction. 5-0 will drop everything to focus on clearing Steve, which means that Wofat can do whatever Wofat wants to do. So they decide to swerve Wofat. The governor makes the statements that he suspended Steve and the evidence is being processed. Meanwhile, Steve is taking a one-way trip to Switzerland before they convene the grand jury. They make a show of him leaving for the press. Wofat has one of his men follow Steve to L.A., the first leg of his journey. Charlie sticks around until Steve's flight to London takes off before going back to Honolulu. In Switzerland, Steve goes to the bank and speaks with the bank manager. He retrieves the $2 million for Steve, who shows his ID, which matches the bank card, and he signs for it. He checks the briefcase and then leaves the office, running into Steve McGarrett. It would seem that one of these Steves is not Steve. Imposter Steve attempts to escape and is shot by a guard. He refuses to give his real name. All he says is 90 seconds. As it turns out, our Steve didn't go in alone as he was accompanied by Carl at Interpool. No one was supposed to get shot. Steve and Carl conspire to quarantine the witnesses so this fiasco doesn't get out. Steve goes to the fake Steve's hotel room where Carl brings in his girl Claudine. She confirms that fake Steve's name is Luther, and he was an English double agent. Wofat paid to have him extensively physically altered to make him look like Steve. He practiced his handwriting for a year. Once he opened the bank account, he knew Wofat would get rid of him, so he killed the assassin and went into hiding. He planned on retrieving the money once Wofat sprung his plan, and then he would have his face changed and disappear for good. All he knew of Wofat's plan was that he needed 90 seconds and a big obstacle out of the way. That obstacle was McGarrett. With all of this information, Steve returns to Hawaii to be Wofat's hindrance. Part 2 begins with the governor and Jonathan Kay arriving at Diamond Head Crater, which has been sealed. Steve arrives by helicopter thanks to a lift from the U.S. Army, and he has the money with them. Everyone takes a baggage cart ride into the defense center tunnel at the crater. They show the assembled folks the doppelganger photo and Steve stating there wasn't a smidge of difference. Jonathan Kay explains that they believe the Wolfat is behind this. The group says that Wofat left for Manila by submarine. A short radio burst confirms a code name Rip Van Winkle, something that Luther had mentioned. The military also confirms they had a minor blackout of the missile tracking system, but it was only a few seconds long. But if it had been the 90 seconds that Wofat had been wanting, it could have meant the end of the world. Steve thinks their best course of action is to have Wofat think things are going swimmingly as long as possible. The primary interest is China, and the rest of the world second. Steve thinks that Hans Vogler has something to do with this. He's a German who became a U.S. citizen and is now the head of the missile tracking system in Hawaii. It seems that Vogler's daughter Lisa has severe asthma, and he first received a transfer to white stands due to her asthma-triggering allergies. However, her relief was apparently short-lived, and he was once again relocated to Hawaii. Steve finds this suspicious. So while the military follows up on those medical records, a new guest arrives. It's Misha the Bear. 
Steve and his friends talk to Misha, who tells him that their missile tracking system detected 39 missile firings in China, but in fact, no missiles were actually fired. They suspect some kind of electronic projection, but he wouldn't be here if he knew for sure. He's asking for a full and frank exchange of information on the subject. He confirms the Rip Van Winkle code name and other details, but they don't know what agent is doing this. Steve tells them that it's Wofat, but Misha doesn't believe him because his intel says that Wofat is still in Manila. While Misha goes to dinner, Steve and friends go talk to a specialist, Dr. Kingby, who fills them in on Lisa Vogler's asthma. It was the reason Hans Vogler was transferred to White Sands to avoid the pollen she was allergic to. However, her severe attacks continued until Hans got transferred to Hawaii. Steve and Jonathan Kay talked to Dr. Vogler about the missile tracking issue. He says it was a simple mechanical issue. Steve asks about his daughter's asthma, informing him that they know Lisa's asthma attacks in White Sands were induced. The implication that he did this to his own daughter terribly upsets him to the point he breaks down in tears before falling over, apparently having some kind of attack. Turns out, it's the weight of guilt. With the approval of Volger's power of attorney, they give Volger sodium pentothal and question him. While under, he admits to being captured by the Russians during the war. He was spared execution while his friends were shot. Jonathan Kay says this is a trick to create a deep-secret agent. He was released to be captured by the Americans, but he committed no acts of sabotage. The Russians never contacted him, but Wofat did. To convince Volger to assist Wofat in his endeavors, he showed him a suicide note in his own handwriting that said he killed himself and murdered his daughter. They forced him to induce Lisa's asthma attacks so he could be transferred to Hawaii. Wofat is currently holding Lisa captive. Steve asks about the 90 seconds. Volger doesn't know why he wants the 90 seconds, but it's supposed to happen at noon that day. The plan is to blank out the entire Pacific Missile Tracking System for 90 seconds. Jonathan Kay believes that this is so China can test a nuclear device, and he wants to see it. In order for this to happen, he's going to have to get a surveillance satellite in the atmosphere, but they're going to need to delay those 90 seconds for two hours. And the only person who can steal two hours of Wofat's time is Vogler. But can they trust him? Okay, I fully admit that my synopsis is kind of a mess, but this episode is ridiculous. And I love it. We have doppelgangers, we have Wofat, we have a frame job that is three years in the making, and it's all for this 90 seconds. And this whole 90 seconds, the whole point of it is to mask a test launch of what would essentially be a delivery device for a nuclear weapon. There is something kind of anticlimactic in that, and I will discuss it, because this is personally my feeling about it. But the best part is, is that when we start this episode, we do not realize that we are going to get to the second part of the two-parter and end up where we end up. So we begin with Steve at the office, and we see him. He makes a note that it's midnight when he leaves. The next time we see him is at this car accident. Now, we don't know he's initially in the car until Duke and this other officer check Benny Jalore and then go around the other side of the car and find out that it is Steve. And he's still alive. And this is obviously looking really suspicious because Benny Jalore is an underworld figure who is known and there is cash all over the car and there's Steve McGarrett. Danny gets on scene and according to Fire Rescue, 
in order to extricate him because the doors are jammed and everything, they're going to have to flip the car. Now, Steve is belted in. We find this out later. But Steve is also saying that he has no feeling and he can't move anything. And they're going to flip this car. There's no backboard involved. There's no sea collar. They do not secure him in any fashion. My spine weeps. Because they do. They just flip that car rough as hell and then peel the top back like it's a can of sardines. And the fact that Steve ends up with absolutely no spinal damage is incredible because I would have slipped a disc just having the car flipped. But that's kind of a main point at the beginning of this episode because we spend a good, I don't know, 15 minutes on the accident portion and extrication hospital. So it's like 15, 20 minutes. Because when he gets to the hospital, he still has no feeling. He's not able to make a fist. They put him through all of these tests. And it's this really great, terrible, melodramatic moment. He's in the hospital bed talking to Danny. The doctors come in and tell him, we found no spinal damage. There's no break in the spinal cord. And he then is able to make a fist and feel things. So it's like he had to be told that he was fine. But it's just so great because like literally like a minute before that, he says he still can't feel anything and he can't make a fist. And then after he's told, he can make a fist and everyone laughs in relief. And it's just so ridiculous. Ridiculously melodramatic. It's beautiful. I love it. Look at my hands. I, I can, I can move them. Meanwhile, we have this investigation going and it's looking so much like, because we know that it's not Steve. Steve wouldn't do any of this. This is not the Steve that we know. But we have obviously him in the car with Benny Jalore. We have the money that is all legit. It's not counterfeit. So there's no question of it being like a sting operation or something. But the only fingerprints found on the case and on the money are Benny Jalore's and Steve's. And then we have Steve's lack of memory. Now, obviously he was in an accident. That kind of a traumatic experience, especially when you're in a car that's flipped and then flipped again, that can affect your memory. It's kind of interesting the way Danny walks him through it. And he's like, okay, do you remember walking down the stairs, trying to get him out of the office? Because all he can remember was leaving the office and nothing after that. Can you remember going down the front stairs to the driveway? Just 
just a hissing sound. So he believes that he was gassed, which would account for his lapse in memory. So all of the pieces of this frame, this frame start pulling together. The handwriting in the notebook is identical to Steve's. The code is one that he would have used while he was in the military. That's where the lieutenant commander comes in to help break this code. It's a list of deposits in a Swiss bank account. They find Steve's car, which is in Benny Delore's driveway, and it was locked. And of course, the keys are in his pocket because that's how good this frame is. And so when they go through the record and they get the ink comparisons and the the ink matches up with the dates that would have been written, it's aged that much, they realize just how sophisticated and thorough this frame is. And not only that, but how long it's been going because the deposits go back like three years. So this is intense. This is involved. And Steve says there's only one person I can think of that can do this. And at that point, they cut away and here is Wolfat coming out of a submarine glorious because of course only Wofat could do this now what's great about this is because they don't know what Wofat's plan is but they do know that he could have executed this accident at any time so the timing is specific and the best way that they can figure out what Wofat's doing is to swerve him and write it out so you have the governor suspending Steve and making a very public statement and then you have Steve playing the part of the villain saying that yeah he's gonna take he's gonna take the money and run it was so. Any further comment, Garrett? Yeah, aloha. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I know how it works. Before they can touch me, they've got to take their evidence before the grand jury. By that time, I'll be in Switzerland. I've already contacted the Swiss bank. The money's waiting. Does that mean the Hawaii will have to extradite you to get you to come back? Well, let me put it this way, gentlemen. Millionaires have a way of avoiding such discomforts. Dano? How this didn't tip Wofat off that something was up? Maybe it did. I can't imagine that Wofat fully thought that Steve was actually going to take the money and run because he knows McGarrett and McGarrett isn't like that. But it's entirely possible that he thought, yes, he's going to go investigate the Swiss bank aspect of this. And he will be out of my hair for my particular portion of the plot. And he still has Charlie follow him, get that flight to L.A. and see him take off on an international flight to England. And then turn around and come back to Hawaii, which is like, man, this guy just catching flights left and right, willy-nilly. We're all jealous. Also, there was probably more leg room back then. Anyway... It seems that Steve is out of Wolfat's hair for now. What's great is that when we do get to Switzerland and we see Steve get the money from the bank person, which part of that frame, at the time he was in Switzerland for a conference, he supposedly set up this bank account. They have his picture. They have his signature. All of that. I mean, that's how good this frame was. We see him go and pick up the money from the bank manager. He shows his ID. There's his badge. And we think, you're led to think that this is Steve picking up the money like he said he was going to and figuring there might be some aspect of investigation. However, Steve never says a word during the interaction. So that's a little bit suspicious, but you kind of don't realize it. You do, but you don't. It's a little odd, but you're like, hmm, okay. And then he leaves and runs into the other Steve. And it's obvious that it was a doppelganger Steve trying to get this money. And this was all a setup. 
Steve is there with Interpool because he was going to talk to the bank manager about the money, had people in place just in case. No one was supposed to shoot, but the bank guard did. And that's how Luther ends up getting hit. Who are you? So then we get introduced to Luther, the double agent, and we find out from Claudine, his girlfriend, that he was a double agent for England, that he went under extensive facial reconstruction to look like Steve. So this is clearly prior to three years because we're talking what would have been late 1960s, early 1970s plastic surgery, which is not quite as advanced as ours. But we're talking like years of reconstructive surgery to make him look like Steve. And then he had to practice his handwriting for another year. So this frame is just, that's just how extensive that this frame job is and how much planning and, and what how much of a long con it was. But of course, because this is television, these plastic surgeons are able to make him look just like Steve. They say later that there wasn't a micron of difference. And it's just so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, doppelganger plotlines tend to always be ridiculous. And that's probably why I love them because they're just so bizarre and out there and unlikely. But when you have like the plastic surgery angle where someone is purposely made to look like someone else, it just, it, it ups that level of ridiculousness. And I love it. I will never hate it. I will never get bored with it. It's goofy. And it's so unrealistic and so unlikely, and yet it's always so good. It's just so much fun. So Luther is dying in this hotel room. It's Claudine fills Steve in on the facial reconstruction surgery. And basically he knew once he opened that bank account that he was done for. There was a man, an assassin with him all the time to kill him. When the time came, Luther killed him and escaped to me. Well, Fad had his agents crisscrossing the place where we were hiding in the south of France, but Luther never went out. He talked to me. I was his. I waited for him to truly be mine. But Luther... Luther was waiting for Wofad to spring his trap on you, and then before you could move, he would get the money. Then Luther knew about the plan. Did he ever tell you what it was? No. He knew that Wolfat needed 90 seconds of time, and to get them, he had to remove one barricade, McGarrett. And then he would once again go into hiding, get his face changed again, and live happily ever after, probably ditching Claudine. Claudine speculates that he would have had no use for her, and he would have gone on without her. So he's a real stellar human being. So it's important to keep Luther's death under wraps for as long as possible. And Carl says they can give him about 48 hours. So Steve takes off to Hawaii to be a thorn in Wofat's side. And he convenes with the governor and notorious prick Jonathan Kay at the Diamond Head Crater. And that's when we get to the next phase. Because all Luther can say is that Wofat needed 90 seconds, but nobody knows what Wofat needs this 90 seconds for. So when we get back to Diamond Head Crater with all of our military guys giving us all of our exposition, 
we find out that this could be related to a missile tracking failure that they had. The system went down for a couple of seconds due to a generator problem, but it was nothing significant. But Steve feels that it is. His spidey senses were clearly tingling. And his spidey senses tingle further when it comes to Hans Vogler. So we were told about Hans Vogler because he is the first German scientist that was approved to work on classified American stuff. He was captured by the Americans during the war and basically turned to our side. So we're recounted with the fact that he was in New Jersey. He married a school teacher who died in childbirth. Lisa ended up developing asthma at the age of like three due to an allergy to a particular kind of pollen. So he was given a transfer to White Sands because that pollen is very rare out there. And everything was fine until, I can't remember how long they say, a few months before. that It was fine until recently. She had a bad asthma attack and then a few months later had a second one that nearly killed her. And so he was secured another transfer to Hawaii to get away from this pollen for Lisa's sake. But Steve notices that in the medical records, they didn't follow up. There's a follow-up missing on these asthma attacks, and he thinks that's significant. And that is truly like a spidey sense tingling, we need to make this work for the plot kind of thing. It's like kind of like something they do on the CSI shows. It's something no one would think of. No one would look at and pay attention to, but that one person obviously has to because otherwise the plot doesn't work. And so he says they need to follow up on that. He sends the military people to do that because he's sure that Vogler, because he's in charge of this tracking system, that he has something to do with it. Maybe Steve is prejudiced against Germans. I don't know. But in the meantime, we get a visit from Misha the Bear. And this is kind of almost unnecessary. I mean, I love Misha. I forgot that he was going to be in another episode, so I was truly surprised when he showed up and so delighted. But his role in this is sort of unnecessary, almost. They talk to Misha. Misha comes in with information from the Russians. Two weeks ago, on the 11th at 6.34 p.m., our missile tracking network picked up what appeared to be 39 missile launchings in the approximate vicinity of the Manchurian base of the Chinese People's Republic. Our computers recorded missile firings in every conceivable direction, simultaneously. In point of fact, none was fired. So China is clearly trying to mess with the missile tracking systems to deflect from something. But Misha's other information and intel about Wofat is outdated. They know he's not in Manila. They're trying very hard to make it look like he is, but they know he's not. And they know he's behind it. He's the Rip Van Winkle that Luther spoke of. So Misha has a little bit of information, but not a whole lot. And it's kind of pointless to the episode. We could have we could have done the rest of the episode and not had a Misha appearance. But we have a Misha appearance, and I'm fine with that. Especially when he asks for tea in a glass because it tastes better. And then gets pissy when they send him off to dinner because they need to talk about confidential things. And when he gets pissy, Steve points out, well, what would you do if I was a guest of your government? And he's like, "Mm, you have a point. And he goes off to have dinner with another one of the military guys while they discuss things. And one of the things they end up discussing is they go and talk to this specialist who looks like a long haired weirdo. That's all I could think when I first saw him. 
was that he would he would be called a long-haired weirdo in an episode of The Monkees. But they talk to him, and the specialist explains that the move to White Sands should have cured Lisa's asthma issues because of the lack of pollen, but that even if the pollen blew in on the breezes at the time she had the attacks, they didn't line up with when that pollen would have been a problem. It was the wrong season. So they know that Lisa's attacks were induced probably to get Volger a transfer to Hawaii, put him in charge of the entire Pacific missile tracking. And so they talked to Hans Vogler. Now Hans Vogler is played by Donald Pleasance. So we are in for an absolute treat because it's Donald Pleasance and he phones in nothing. He goes all the way every time. He is a glorious actor and we all love him. Because Steve's laying it out for him. He's ask, he asks him about the first uh, missile tracking issue. And Volger maintains it was a generator issue. It was no big deal. And then when he brings up Lisa's asthma attacks and starts to imply that they were induced, Volger gets very upset. He gets very distraught. I could never do a thing like that to my own daughter. I never suggested you did, Doctor. What kind of monster do you think I am? <laughs> How could I do anything like that? To my lease? Only a monster. If you can leave this life. My little girl, she... She couldn't breathe. How could I do that? <laughs> she can't eat. He looks almost unhinged when he's protesting this, like his eyes get huge. I mean, it's just, sir, you're not convincing any of us. And then he sort of collapses into sobs and then apparently has some sort of an attack. It's later revealed that it's the weight of the guilt that's causing his physical episodes but at the time, you don't know that. And you're kind of like, was he poisoned? Did he poison himself? Is he having an apoplexy? What is this? Because there's like, he just kind of keels over to the side and his eyes roll back in his head. And it's just bizarre and fits the rest of this episode so beautifully when it comes to being a little ridiculous. They use this opportunity to clear it with his power of attorney to administer a little sodium pentothal. Good old-fashioned truth serum, because he's obviously suppressing, he's blocking, and they need to relieve some of this guilt or else he's going to have a nervous breakdown. In the course of the sodium pentothal interrogation, he does admit to being forced to induce Lisa's asthma attacks by Wofat, because otherwise Wofat would have killed them both and made it look like a murder-suicide. And he did not want to put Lisa in jeopardy. Except she kind of is because Wolfat kidnapped her to ensure that he would go through with the 90-second plan. And we've seen Wolfat with children before. I'm sure she was perfectly safe and unharmed. Possibly playing chess with him. Who knows? 
But we also discover that Vogler was initially captured by the Russians. The Russians used a torture tactic, as Jonathan Kay explains. They basically murdered all of his friends and spared his life. And when you do something like that, it shows the person that you have control over him. And they'll do anything you say. So he was supposed to be like a Russian sleeper agent, but he was never contacted to do any kind of sabotage. However, Wofat contacted him. And that's where we get involved with this 90 second plan. Now, again, all Vogler knows is that he needs 90 seconds. And they know the 90 seconds involves blacking out the missile tracking system for the Pacific. So Jonathan Kay comes in and this is where we see the prick that we're so used to. He fills us in with some information. They know that China has detonated some nuclear devices before. They know they have that capability, but they don't have the delivery system. And he figures the 90 seconds is so they can test the delivery system for this. And he wants to see it. They need to know what China has, what they're capable of, which means that they can't touch Wofat and they can't save Lisa, which does not sit real well with Steve. But Jonathan Kay is emphatic about this. What they need is two hours so they can get a spy satellite basically into orbit over the Pacific so they can monitor this. And the only person that can do that is Vogler. There's some doubt that he will go through with it, but it's pointed out that he's basically been hiding for 25 years. If anybody can fool Wofat, it's him. And you know what? They're right. Because taking, I think, a little inspiration from the long con to frame Steve and get him out of the way for this, they pull a little con of their own. I'm a man of near infinite patience. But don't test me. Or should I lose my temper? Both remaining threads of the Vogler tapestry will cease to exist. A change of personnel and schedule has nothing to do with me. Are not you the head of operations? I'm not concerned with routine scheduled changes. Meaning what? The wife of our monitoring engineer was hospitalized last night. The schedule was adjusted so that he could go to hospital with her. Nothing can be done until this man returns to his duties. How could you have been informed of that, Dr. Vogler? You could not be contacted. I attempted to do so several times, and I am most resourceful. I was with him, with the engineer at the hospital, to see if anything could be resolved and I could be done with you at noon today. But I couldn't. Which hospital? The Leahi Hospital. And the engineer's name? Yamato. Yamato? His wife is in the maternity ward. Maternity ward, please. Dr. Vogler, you interrupted this project? There were complications in cesarean section. And when Wofat checks his story, it checks out because they set up his story to be checked out. And he ends up giving Vogler the two hours. So this will all go down at two o'clock. And it has to be very specifically orchestrated in order for it to happen. And it leads up to a pretty tense conclusion. You know what else is ridiculous in a good way? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. 
Hans Vogler, as I said, was played by Donald Pleasance. He has 241 credits going back to 1952 on IMDb. Probably best known as Dr. Sam Loomis in the Halloween franchise. And while better known for his film work, he did appear in episodes of Assignment Foreign Legion, The Adventures of Robin Hood, BBC Sunday Night Theater, ITV Television Playhouse, Danger Man, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, The Defenders, The Fugitive, Armchair Theater, Columbo and Mrs. Columbo, Police Surgeon, Peep Show, The Bastard, Lovejoy, and Signs and Wonders. He appeared in the movies Shadows and Fog, Buried Alive, Ten Little Indians, Prince of Darkness, Warrior Queen, To Kill a Stranger, The Devonsville Terror, Alone in the Dark, Escape from New York, the 1979 version of Dracula, Night Creature, Oh God, The Eagle Has Landed, House of the Damned, Kidnapped, You Only Live Twice, Fantastic Voyage, The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Great Escape, Sons and Lovers, Circus of Horrors, Heart of a Child, A Tale of Two Cities, 1984, and The Beachcomber. He appeared in the TV movies Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Occupations, The Count of Monte Cristo, Gold of the Amazon Women, All Quiet on the Western Front, Witness for the Prosecution, and The Great Escape 2, The Untold Story. And he appeared in the miniseries Hitman, Master of the Game, The Barchester Chronicles, the French Atlantic Affair, Centennial, and Jesus of Nazareth. Claudine was played by Dana Winter. She was Ava Wainwright on The Man Who Never Was and Jill Daly on Bracken. She also appeared in episodes of Burke's Law, Wagon Train, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, My Three Sons, The Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, The Invaders, Get Smart, The FBI, O'Hara, U.S. Treasury, Macmillan and Wife, Cannon, Medical Center, Ellery Queen, The Rockford Files, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, Heart to Heart, Love Boat, and Magna P.I. She appeared in the movies Lovers Like Us, Santee, Triangle, Airport, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, Since the Bismarck, in Love and War, and D-Day, the 6th of June. And she appeared in the TV movies, The Connection, The Quester Tapes, The Lives of Ginny Dolan, M-Station Hawaii, with Jack Lord, and The Return of Ironside. Jonathan Kay was played by Tim O'Connor. This is his second of two episodes. We previously saw him in 10,000 Diamonds and a Heart. Misha the Bear was played by Roger C. Carmel. This is his third of three episodes. Dr. Schmel was played by Jack McCoy. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in King of the Hill and Beautiful Screamer. Lieutenant Commander Smollett was played by Robert Withens. This is his second and third of ten episodes. We also saw him in Two Doves and Mr. Heron. Charbon was played by John Strasser. This is his first of six episodes. Carl Albrecht was played by Wright Esser. This is his seventh and eighth of 11 episodes. Chow Lee was played by Robert Nelson. This is his first and second of three episodes. Officer Ishi was played by Herman Wedemeyer. This is his last episode before he was Duke for good. I know I called him Duke throughout the episode, but he wasn't actually Duke. Sorry. Officer O'Loughlin was played by Bernard Ching. This is his fourth of 15 episodes. 
General Cardell was played by Les Ketter. This is his second of nine episodes. We also saw him in Over 50 Steel. Wes Carter was played by Tom Morton. This is his only credit. Dr. Kingsby was played by Richard Fawn. He was also in the movie Troika. Mitchell was played by Roman Bill Winkleman. This is his first of two episodes. And in uncredited roles, the reporter was played by Bill Walden. He was actually a war correspondent for ABC during World War II. He was also an announcer on Edgar Bergen's radio show. And he frequently played reporters or announcers or commentators. He was also the narrator on Harbor Command and Bat Masterson. And he was the announcer on The Bob Cummings Show. The McGarrett imposter voice was provided by Paul Fries. This is his second of two episodes. We also heard him in Odd Man Inn. The military doctor was played by Jerry Hausner. He was the voice of Waldo in the Mr. Magoo cartoons. He also appeared in episodes of I Love Lucy and Here's Lucy, Hawaiian Eye, Dick Tracy, Wagon Train, Hazel, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Patty Duke Show, My Three Sons, The Monkeys, The Mothers-in-Law, Green Acres, Julia, Alice, and The Doris Day Show. He appeared in the movies Who's Minding the Store, Paths of Glory, Off Limits, The Atomic City, and Justice Once. And he was in the TV movies Mooch, Marie, The Girl, The Gold Watch, and Dynamite. And Amos. And that is The 92nd War, Parts 1 and 2. Like I said, really enjoy this episode because it has so many ridiculous over-the-top elements in it. That frame job plan, the amount of work and time that went in it, absolutely love it. Love the ridiculousness of the doppelganger. It's a little anticlimactic, at least for me, in that Wofat went through all of this. We're talking years of preparation to steal those 90 seconds for what ended up being just a, a test flight for a nuclear delivery device, which I realize that's serious because obviously, yes, that could lead to the annihilation of the world. But it's just it just kind of adds into the ridiculousness that they went to all of this effort and all of this trouble and all of this work and planning for those 90 seconds for what amounts to be a test flight. There's just, it just adds to the ridiculousness. I mean, it's a little anticlimactic, but it also just kind of adds into the ridiculousness of the rest of this episode. And I'm using ridiculous in the best way possible. This two-parter is absolutely a whole lot of fun. So over the top, just such a, a great roller coaster ride. Definitely give it a watch. How are you liberating? Untalented, unfortunately. And that is episode 47 of Become Dano. I love a good two-parter, and so far Hawaii Five-O has delivered every single time when it comes to that. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your ears. Sorry about the background noise that popped up about halfway through the episode. Someone decided to start watching something at an incredible volume in the other room. All part of the charm. 
If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to see me get ridiculous in real time, you can still do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So mind those doppelgangers and always keep an eye out for Wofat. Until next time. Aloha.